We'll be considering the promises of God's Word from the book of Colossians again this morning. If you take your copy and turn there, Colossians chapter 1. In keeping with a good, fast, expository pace, we'll be covering one verse this morning. I'll read more than that to keep us in context, but uh, I think that there's some, some wonderful, I know, <laughs> that there's wonderful truth here uh, for us to hear. So I'll read verses 9 to 12, introducing a, another section, but certainly related to that, the sections that have gone before, as this is one letter. But let's hear the word of the Lord, Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 through 12. Paul writes, and so from the day we heard, heard what? Well, if you haven't been with us, he heard in verse 4 of the Colossians' faith in Christ Jesus, the love they have for all the saints because of the hope that they had heard about in the gospel. So from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience, with joy giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Uh, Who wants to stop? He, He... the Son, has, God, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The two things that I want to talk about in turn today that is, is uh, built into Paul's prayer here for the Colossians have to do with the concept of, of intercession and also the concept of God's will. Those will kind of be the two pieces that we'll be talking about today in the context of Paul's prayer. Uh, we're going to see Paul's prayer pattern. Uh, we'll see Paul's prayer request. We're going to see Paul's prayer example uh, that we want to talk about to bring us uh, to the conclusion of our time and lead us to the Lord's table this morning. So uh, starting out, let's look and consider Paul's prayer pattern. It's interesting. We see we, we prayed through together. Uh, I appreciate how Isaac phrased that. I hope that you catch that aspect of our, our liturgy, uh, the flow of thought through our service, that we're just not, we're not just reading scripture together, but we open our gathering uh, intending to prayerfully speak God's word together. We hear it read sequentially through Exodus, through John, and we're working on right now. Uh, But that earlier moment in our gathering when we're reading God's word today, Philippians 1, I think it was 3 through 11, uh, is meant to be prayerfully engaged in. Let, Let me, I hope you remember that between this week and next week. Uh, But that time is not just, well, let's just quote scripture, let's just recite scripture together. Uh, But we're using passages that are are prayerful passages throughout scripture that we might be in prayer using God's word together at the beginning of our gathering. And Paul, in many of his letters, probably all of his letters, addresses some aspect of prayer. And a common theme uh, of Paul's prayer, common aspect of his pattern, is that there are two sections to this. Even churches that he has to write some pretty severe statements to, like the Corinthians, like the Galatians, he, he always has a pattern that involves both thanksgiving and intercession. And we see that here as well. Notice as Paul is praying, well, first of all, uh, the last two weeks in discussing aspects of prayer, we've emphasized, and maybe a third time's a charm, maybe it'll sink into our hearts a little bit more. There's a Godward focus. 
to Paul's requests. Remember how we mentioned, like, if, if God doesn't, isn't involved, uh, then we shouldn't be thanking him, right? If God isn't at work, then we shouldn't be asking him. But the fact that, that we pray to God, all of those requests should mean that we believe that God is involved in those things, right? So the faith, the love, the hope, the spread of the gospel, the fruit being born, and then here, the things, the filling uh, with the knowledge of his will, etc. all of these things are addressed in prayer to God because it is, even as we pray today, the work of God that he began is continuing and will bring to completion, So we must have a a Godward focus to our prayer because no growth in our Christian lives is possible without God. Zero growth. Not a little bit. Not you you need a boost, right? Nothing. Jesus was not exaggerating when he told his disciples, without me, you can do nothing. It's not hyperbole. Not an exaggeration. That is a statement of absolute fact from Christ our Savior. We need God for all things, spiritual and physical, so we approach him in prayer. And then Paul's prayer pattern, again, certainly focused on God. It's like, well, of course, he's praying to God, but I think we can miss that. That's why I wanted to emphasize that. But it involved thanksgiving, which was recognizing what God has done. That's what thanksgiving is. This is what you have done, and we thank you for it. Uh, and his pattern also included intercession. That's a little bit of a bigger word. What is intercession? Intercession is asking for something on behalf of someone else, right? In this case, it's asking God in prayer for him to meet someone else's needs. Not just praying for you, praying for them. You know, sometimes you ask mom or dad if you can have ice cream. But sometimes you ask if your sister's also have ice cream, right? Intercessory work happening in the home. Intercession like that, it's an act of love, not just thinking about yourself, but thinking about the needs of somebody else and seeking for those needs to be met. Someone else's needs. Where we say, we pray things like, oh oh God, please act on my sister's behalf, on my brother's behalf. And we're speaking spiritual family terms here. That is love for the saints as our siblings, to move beyond what our needs are, to be thinking about the needs of somebody else, and then to bring them before God for those needs to be met. That is intercession. And when we intercede for others in prayer, our hearts are not just aligned with the Apostle Paul. That's, that sounds good enough, but not really what our goal is, right? Not just let us all be Paulites. We're not Paulites, what are we? Christians. And when we intercede for others in prayer, our hearts are not just aligned with Paul. Our hearts are aligned with the heart of Christ. Perhaps we could say we are never more Christ-like in our prayers than when we intercede for others. Jesus demonstrated intercession throughout the Gospels. Peter, I have prayed for you as you face these temptations, that you'd be strengthened, that, that you would face that, you would not be overcome, right? that Satan would not have you, that you would have grace to restore you when you fall. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. 
examples of intercession. John 17, he prayed for his disciples and for those who would hear the gospel through their ministry. I don't just pray for them. I pray for those in Hurricane, West Virginia. I pray for those who will hear the word through them, that they would be one. Jesus interceding for us, not just us, but all of his people throughout time. And this intercession was not limited to Christ's earthly ministry. Paul wrote to the church at Rome that the resurrected and ascended Christ through the clouds entering into the throne room of heaven, seated at the right hand of God, the majesty on high, his work on earth complete, waiting to receive the orders to go and establish kingdom in defeating his enemies, And what is Jesus doing at this point, right now? Seated at the right hand of God, interceding for us, for you. Did you you know that Jesus prays for you? And it's not broad, okay? That is specific. That is individual. Jesus knows you, loves you, died for you, rose for you, ascended for you, prays for you. And not just when he gets around to it or when he happens to remember your name. You know, when we pray for other people, we might have to like run through a list. Don't want to forget anybody. Try to think through the membership alphabetical. I always forget somebody. Pray through the directory. Maybe we misprinted the directory. Maybe you're not in the directory because you're not a member yet. I want to pray for you too. I don't want to forget those type of things. We get around to that. It's just like, oh boy, so many names to remember. This is a small body. Jesus doesn't have to get around to remembering your name. He doesn't need a list to recall who his people are. He's known us as long as he's chosen us, which is from eternity past. And he prays for us. The eternal omniscient, all-knowing Son of God is in perfect, constant communion with his eternal, omniscient Father. It's so close that in the imagery that we can have, he's seated at his right hand in a place of privilege, intimacy, and he constantly prays for the needs of all his people, including you. And it isn't just God the Son who intercedes for us. Earlier in that same passage in Romans chapter 8, Paul writes that God the Holy Spirit also intercedes for the saints. How silly of us to ever doubt that God is for us or to think that God has forgotten us. We have these passages, and it's not limited to that, that speak of the triune God in prayerful communication about our needs. God's love for us is demonstrated toward us and that Christ died for us and that Christ prays for us. Every Christian, you, follower of Jesus, every Christian individually known, individually prayed for in the communication among the triune God of the universe. And in our prayers, we can align with the heart of Christ and we likewise can intercede for one another. As we continue to consider Paul's prayer pattern of thanksgiving and intercession, and there's a lot of linkages between these two things. There's a lot of, uh, since we heard, right? That's a, that's a link. We heard, so we thank. 
It's in verse 4. We heard, so we ask. That's in verse 9. And a number of other things that are linked between these two concepts of this. And Paul, I think, is trying to do that. Like he's thinking through the requests that he's praying for them and recognizing the fact that there is supposed to be and there is overlap on those things. Why is that? Well, because in his thanksgiving and in his intercession, there's actually something very pastoral about sharing these prayer requests with the Colossians. When he tells the Colossians what his prayers of thanksgiving on their behalf have been about, he is reminding them of their past progress in order to encourage them. Look at what has happened. I heard about it. I'm thankful to God because he's the one that's doing this. Why is he telling them? Because he wants them to think about what God has done for them, that they might also give thanks for themselves individually and corporately. He's reminding them, look at what God has done. I'm thankful for that. We should be thankful for that. And now as he continues to tell them what his prayers of intercession for them are about, he is reminding them of their need for God to continue working in them in the same areas that he was thankful for them about. It's not just like, oh yeah, you believed and you loved and you hoped. Okay, now there's something else. Really, he's joining those two things together to say, it's like you have faith. You need to grow in faith. You have love. You need to grow in love. You have hope. You need to multiply. You need to abound in hope. And just as that, the sources of that was God, the sources for that now are God reminding them of their need for God to continue working in them, which is why he continues to pray for it. There's a, there's a humbling aspect to this as well. That's that kind of that pastoral aspect where there's an encouragement, but it's, it doesn't just stop. It's not just like, oh, good job, that's over with. No, he's saying, you've come a long way, praise God. You've got a long way to go. Seek God's help. You see how pastoral that is? Right. Good job, keep going. God is not finished with you yet. There's an excited expectation involved in this as well. You know, at mile marker 10 of a marathon, you could rightly cheer for someone, encourage them for how far they've traveled. I, I never ran the full 26.2, but Leanne came to a distance run, mile six, seven, eight, something like that. Good job, honey. Way to go. I was encouraged, but uh, I didn't stop. And if you just encourage at mile 10, you've come a long way. That's great. But it's also like, but you have 16.2 left to go. So don't stop, right? You've come a long way. Good job. You've got a long way to go. Keep going. That's his request to them, and he's reminding them of that. Because as they needed God's help for everything leading up to it, so they need God's help for everything flowing from this. And we don't know where we are in that journey, right? Are we on mile 10? Are we on mile 25? Is our race going to be cut shorter than we think it's going to be? We don't know. But we need God and his grace is sufficient for us in every step of the way. So we pray for each other about this. That's Paul's, Paul, Paul's prayer pattern. Alliteration can be a little bit tricky. It's also the nature of his request. What exactly is he asking for them? Because he doesn't just say, I'm praying for you, and then moves on to another argument. He actually tells them in prayer what it is he's asking for them. And his prayer request listed there in verse 9 
from the day we heard, we've not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will. That you may be filled with the knowledge of his will. We have to look carefully at that. We can, we can see, it's interesting because he's saying what his request was, but he's not saying it as a request. Does that make any sense? <laughs> he's not writing this to God in prayer. He's writing it to the Colossians, telling them what he has said to God, but, but they're the ones he's talking to. So the be filled by is what we could call a, a divine passive, the tense of the verb, right? It's not, I'm praying, go fill yourselves. It's on you. That's not the request. He's praying that they would be filled. By who? Well, it's the context of prayer. So who's the only subject? Praying that God would fill them with the knowledge of his will. We pursue filling from someone else, from God. So we could, again, reword this as Paul's prayer request rather than as Paul's prayer report to say, Father, please fill your people with the knowledge of your will. That's the request that Paul had offered and he reports that back to them. Fill them with the knowledge of your will. That's the aspect of his request. That raises a big question that really determines a lot of how we're supposed to understand this and affects our own prayers for us and for other people, which is what is the will of God? What does that mean? What exactly are they supposed to know? What is it that Paul is longing that God would fill them with the knowledge of? What is the will of God that Paul is talking about? And we can rightly and biblically speak of God's will in two senses. His will of decree. If it could come up. We'll get there eventually. Yep, lost it. Can you get it to will of decree? And his will of command. Thank you. <laughs> uh, that was part of God's will. Uh, it was not part of my will. That was a good object lesson, better illustration that I could give. We could speak of the will of God as his will of decree and his will of command. And it is very important for us to understand the difference between these two things. God's will of decree, first of all, reminds us that God has ordained, planned, right? that's what I mean by that, planned all things that have ever and will ever take place. Everything. We speak about this as his complete and total sovereignty. Right? God's sovereign in control of all things from an eternity past, that plan is that which is carried out. This plan is God's will, that which certainly will take place. We go through scripture and see a number of instances of this after it has taken place. We'll get back to that. There's also another sense that the Bible speaks of God's will, and that is uh, his will of command or that which aligns with God's character, that which ought to take place, that which he has revealed in his word for us to do. Will decree that which does 
will happen. Has happened, is happening, will happen. All ordained from eternity past. Then there's the will of command, that which ought to take place in the world in which God has made. Maybe this can be a helpful example. Stealing and murder are never the will of God in that he forbids them specifically. Those things ought never to happen. It is a violation of God's will of command. You shall not steal. You shall not commit murder. He forbids these things specifically. But as we read in God's word and see in the world around us, do stealing and murder happen? Yes. So as we see those things clearly happening in the world, his, his will of command being violated, do we say, oh no, God's will has been utterly upset. It's not happening anymore. No, they are part of his will of decree. They are part of his plan for human history because nothing happens except through God and by his will. So we can use the same word. We need to recognize a distinction in the concept between those two things. Will of decree, that which does happen and will certainly happen. Then there's that which ought to happen. Perhaps it's a way of looking at those type of things. How does this relate to this passage? Well, we're praying for the knowledge of his will, so it's kind of the question of, well, which one? What, are, what do we want to know? What do we want God to fill us with? Except under extraordinary circumstances, even in the scriptures, What's the opposite of extraordinary? Ordinary, right? Normal, right? So July, would it normally snow in West Virginia, here in Hurricane, in July? No. Could it happen? Sure, but it would be extraordinary. It wouldn't be a normal circumstance. It would actually be extremely rare. Except on extraordinary circumstances, even in the scriptures, God does not give knowledge of his will of decree to his people ahead of time. That is not how he acts. Are you saying God can't? Did I say God can't? Or did I say God doesn't? I mean, I didn't say the word doesn't, but that's what I meant. Just be clear. Oh, you're limiting God. No, I'm saying what has God done? And except in extraordinary circumstances, even in the scriptures, God does not give his knowledge of his will of decree to his people. They, these aspects of his plan are not uncertain, but they are unrevealed. They are known by God, not known by us. God knows the future. God has planned the future, but God does not tell us the future. God knows the full number of your days whether that count is one or 10,000. He doesn't tell you what that number is. God knows the details of your health. He knows if you will get married and who you will marry. He knows what job you will get and what job you will lose. Every detail of our lives and the lives of everyone else on earth are ordained by God. Nothing is random. Nothing is unplanned. But those details are among the unrevealed things of God. Not by accident, but by his plan. He does not reveal all of the details of the future of our lives to us ahead of time. 
God has revealed much to us in his word, but not everything. We see that even spoken of in God's word. Deuteronomy 29, Moses instructed the people, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. There's secret things. There are revealed things. The secrets are known by God, not revealed to us. As if they were revealed, they wouldn't be a secret anymore. <laughs> and I have a secret. Let me tell you what it is, but let's all keep it a secret. They're like, what's, what's the point of that? There are, there's a distinction between these two things. And God filling you with the knowledge of his will does not mean answering your questions about the future or telling you specifically what choices you should make. God does know these things. He knows what choices you will make. He knows what those choices and circumstances will lead to. But except under extraordinary circumstances, even in the scriptures, he does not reveal those things to his people. So what is Paul praying for? What, what part of God's will are we supposed to know? We're supposed to know his will of command. Those things that are revealed in his word that are entirely sufficient to guide us in living lives that are pleasing to God. He has kept nothing from us. God has kept nothing from you that you need in order to live a life that is, as we'll talk about next week, worthy of him as our Lord and fully pleasing to him. It's all here. God ordained, planned, decreed from eternity past that I would marry Leanne DeWeese. But you could read the Bible in any translation, probably in any language, from cover to cover and never once find the statement, thus says the Lord, Peter Ambler should marry Leanne DeWeese. It's not there. Anybody found that? Did you see that one? I didn't see that one. However, just because that wasn't spelled out for me in that type of detail, it doesn't mean that God gave me no guidance as to who I should marry. The Bible says that marriage is good and honorable, so I was free to pursue marriage to someone. The Bible says that marriage is to be between a man and a woman, and she's a woman, so we're good there. The Bible says that a Christian must only marry another Christian, and Leanne and I are both Christians, so we're good there. The Bible tells us to walk in wisdom, in community with other more mature believers. And other mentors of ours and our parents agreed that it was a good relationship. So I asked her to marry me and eventually she said yes. And we got married. And it sounds really simple, right? Single folks, sounds really simple 14 and a half years later. Like the angst fades over time. And it gets really simple for all of us married folks. It's like, let's just pair it up, have some ceremonies, figure everything else out. And you're like, bad idea. It's like, well, it's not a terrible idea, but it's not what we're going to do. But he did, the clouds didn't part, the snow writing in the sky, right? The feelings of, in my stomach were, I like her. Not God saying, you must like her. I think sometimes when we are praying that God will give us wisdom as to our decisions, 
we are actually seeking a guarantee that nothing will go wrong in those decisions. That things will certainly go well for us. Should I buy this used car? And what I mean by that is, God, will this used car never break down for me? Should I buy this house? As in, God, make sure nothing was missed in the inspection so I'm not buying anything that will ever cause me any financial hardship. Should I pursue this relationship? As in, will we be perfectly compatible and never have any arguments or disagreements and live forever and ever, happily ever after? That's not reality. That is not actually God's will for us. Not only does he offer no such guarantees that your, your car or your house or your relationships or your health will always proceed in, uh, in perfection and goodness, not only does he not promise or guarantee that that will ever happen, he actually very clearly tells us the opposite, doesn't he? What should we expect living in this world? Trials, difficulties, cars will break down, mice will find their way into your house. Right? Relationships will go through struggles. Right? The happily ever after is like Jesus and his bride in heaven. And it's not like misery ever after on earth and human marriage. This isn't some like griping session. Like, I, we are happy. <laughs> God's been good. Um, and sometimes I don't act fully sinfully and go against her in those type of things. There's, there's peace when I'm submitting to Christ. But I don't always. So there's no perfection because it's two sinners that have come together also. God has promised that trials and difficulties will come. Not all relationships continue. Not all purchases are good ones. Not all jobs are permanent. Not all ventures are successful. Yet even in the face of these disappointments, God's will for us is not somehow missed. Right? I've said it before, but it's like we really do in our heart. I know we do. In our hearts, because they're sinful, we got that sinful nature that clings and lingers and infects. We all love prosperity gospel preaching. We all want health and wealth. And then we're like, well, but not that much. Not every believer in a Ferrari or a Rolls Royce. We don't all get jets and $10 million mansions. It's like, oh, those guys, man, psychos, heretics, I don't want that, but it's just like, but I really do need to be healthy this week. Right? My, my car really shouldn't break down right now. I really do need this, this job. It's only making X amount per year. That one needs to continue. I'm not asking for millions. I'm just asking for thousands. But you better give it to me. Right? It's the same sinful hearts. And in the face of disappointments that will come for us, God's will for us is not somehow missed. In fact, when those things go wrong, it is what he has decreed taking place in our disappointments and in our successes. It wasn't missed. It is accomplished because God has ordained everything that takes place, everything that happens. A better concern for us would not be just like, am I going to make the right decision in which nothing will ever go wrong? It would be more concerning for us to be able to ask, have I obeyed God's revealed will during those trials? How am I going to respond to disappointments and loss and breaking down and difficulties? Right? Because God has given us clear statements about his will of command as to how we are to respond to trials of various kinds. 
There's no promise trials won't come. There's promise that trials will come. God's will for you is count it all joy when you encounter various trials. Because those trials are producing endurance that you may be perfect and mature in Christ, lacking in nothing. Don't, maybe we'll say waste. I have spend in my notes, but maybe we'll, we'll, we'll upgrade that to waste. Don't waste your time seeking direct, specific answers from God regarding exactly what you should do. Should you have cereal or eggs for breakfast? Well, God's will for me this morning was cereal. And I know that without a shadow of a doubt because I had cereal for breakfast this morning. Should you turn right or left at the intersection to avoid traffic? That would be a cool answer to prayer. Except maybe God wants you to sit in the traffic because your sinful flesh is going to come out and he needs to sanctify you. Patiently endure through all things. Right? Do, not, do not sin in your anger. There's a will of God for you. Should you pursue a relationship with this specific Christian? Should you accept that precise job? Instead, seek to know the will of God's command, how you should live, what sins you should avoid, what virtues you should pursue. These are the things that are clearly revealed in his word. One author said that that God's will, in reference to this, God's will is not to be sought anywhere else than in his word. I want to feel God's will. I want you to read God's will. And how true that is. Two quick examples of this from 1 Thessalonians, uh, other passages, but this was just very, very clear. Paul says, this is the will of God. And when we read that, hopefully that catches your attention. It's like, oh, yes, that's what I want to know. What is God's will? What am I supposed to do? This is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality. And he goes on to give examples. He says it later in the same book again. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and and give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. House goes unrepaired, house burns down. Are you going to rejoice and pray and give thanks? Success in your job? Whatever the failure in your job, like, oh, God's will. Rejoice, trust, endure with patience, fix your affections on heaven, right? The hope that is laid up for you, not here. Those are the things that are God's will for you to be able to pursue. This was helpful. I talked to a pastor several years ago. We were still up in Michigan at the time trying to understand God's will for me in a particular decision about a church that when uh, we were candidate, we, I was candidating at, Leanne's not a pastor here, I don't know if you knew that. Uh, she wouldn't have been a pastor there either. Uh, she's just married to a pastor, pray for her. But I wanted to know, like, is this the right decision? But it's so easy to couch that in, is this God's will for me to be a pastor here? Talking to people, praying with people, talking to the search committee, talking to other pastors that knew me and knew that. Is this this is the right direction for us. Is this what God wants us to do? And trying to think through things clearly and talk to him. He was a pastor at another church, a friend of mine named Matt. Talking to Matt and, and trying, to be, trying to think through this. And he had a more wise approach to God's will that was very, uh, it was this actually, and uh, helpful to me. And he, just, he told me a, a story that that church body had an opportunity to purchase a tract of land. 
that they wanted to build on. They'd been renting property. They wanted to save up money. They wanted to purchase this. They wanted to build there. That sounds good, right? A gathering place for God's people, stewardship of resources. And so they prayed about it long time, talked to people about the land, talked to circumstances, considered things, had engineers and inspectors come in and do this, right? Due diligence, covered in prayer, good motives, good plan. They bought it. And I don't remember how, but at some point after that purchase found out that it was utterly unbuildable, buildable on, they now owned a useless tract of land. So you'd say, oh, you missed God's will. You'd be like, how? Right? Like, did you just hear the list of things that I walked through? Right? Like, good, good price, good property, good motives, but it didn't go well. And be like, oh, must have missed God's will on that one. To which we would say, no. Right? Made a decision with the best wisdom that you could have, prayerfully sought, but there was no guarantee that that decision would go well. There's no guarantee of success. Just because success doesn't happen doesn't mean that you disobeyed God's will. I need to talk to another pastor at that church to figure out what's happened with that since. I was thinking about that this morning to just see like immediately what looked like a disappointment because God is good and merciful and generous and powerful. I like, wonder what they were able to do with that in the future to sell that to, like, that's totally what God does, Right? Like take something that's a disappointment and a, and a, and a burden and a, a liability could turn it into an asset later. Maybe he has, maybe he hasn't. Maybe they just still sit on this useless piece of land. I don't know. What does filling mean though? We're to be filled with the knowledge of God's will. God wants to fill his people as, as we work out what he is working in us means that we should prioritize knowing God's will of command. Practically, this means having a growing, increasing knowledge of the instructions and principles and commands of God's word. We shouldn't use God's word as something that provides us with just a little bit of advice on the side. Oh, I have a big decision. Let me read my Bible and throw up a quick, couple of quick prayers, and then I'll just close it and I'll set it on the shelf again until I have another big decision to make. Because I really want God to bless everything that I'm doing right now. Like he's a genie. Do you know God's not a genie? Prayer is not rubbing the lamp. God's word should be a primary foundational source of truth and guidance for us. We should join Christ in the prayer that he taught us. Our Father in heaven, may your will be done on earth. It means in me as it is done in heaven. And God's will of decree doesn't have to be sought. We don't have to ask him to accomplish what he is going to accomplish. He's going to accomplish it. So that's taking place and we can trust in those type of things and just wait to see what that happens. But that will is like, Lord, your commands have been given and I want to follow them. Anytime I think about this, it's like, well, what type of obedience or what aspect of God's will is done in heaven? The angels in their obedience, they are unclear about what God's expectations of them are. He gives them a command and they joyfully immediately answer those type of things. And so Jesus is saying, we, we want that to be our response to God's instructions of us. How does God fill us with the knowledge of his will? Paul explains this in his prayer. We are filled with the knowledge of his will 
in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, which uh, spiritual wisdom and understanding, you can see in some other translations, it's, it's, is this a sphere type thing? We're not just talking about like physical wisdom and understanding, and that's certainly the case, uh, but you can also take this phrase as meaning not just spiritual wisdom that we gain, but actually wisdom and understanding, yeah, certainly in that realm, uh, but it could be uh, having to do with a source, like where does that wisdom and understanding come from? And it is given to us by the Holy Spirit. So when he says spiritual wisdom and understanding, you could take that in all wisdom and understanding from or by the Holy Spirit. Paul outlines how God will fill us with this knowledge of his will, how he will instruct and guide us in obeying his command in our everyday lives. God fills us with the knowledge of his will by his Spirit giving us wisdom and understanding. Wisdom is a common theme in Scripture, right? Old and New Testaments, significant, significant portions of Scripture talk about wisdom. What does that mean? Wisdom, a simple definition, might be God's way of living in God's world. Not unique to me, but God's way of living in God's world. This is his place. How does he want us to live in it? And knowing that is living according to God's will wisdom. So once again, unless there is a specific biblical command related to the decision that you're facing, is it, uh, should I be immoral? No. Should I steal? No. (laughs) Should I murder? I want to hear. No. (laughs) Unless there's a specific biblical command, then your question should move from what decision does God want me to make to How can I honor God and live in obedience while making decisions and living with my decisions? When it comes to God's command, you do not hear this whole paragraph, okay? When it comes to God's command, you do not need the Holy Spirit's help to intellectually comprehend the parameters of the command. It's in plain English. You, you, shall not, not, steal like, I don't get it. Yes, you do. I didn't say you liked it. I didn't say you're going to follow it. I said you get it. Stealing. You're in a store. You want a candy bar. You don't have the money for the candy bar, or you just don't want to pay for it. You know from the Bible, God has clearly commanded, you shall not steal. At that point of temptation, you do not need the Holy Spirit's help to know what to do. It is clear as day, don't steal the candy bar. I'm just confused. I really need wisdom from God in this. No, you don't. Like, that's not what this is. You do need the Holy Spirit's help to want to do God's command. You do need the Holy Spirit's help to have a heart that lovingly longs to follow God's command. But you don't really need, there's no, there's no wisdom involved in being like, stealing's wrong, this is stealing, don't do this, right? That's a pretty simple example but it's not always that simple. Sometimes it is. Should I, should I look at this immorality on my phone? No. <laughs> you shouldn't. Should I steal this candy bar? No. Should I forgive this person? Yes. Good, you're paying attention. These are simple acts of obedience, but simple does not mean easy. That's a different 
That's a different piece to it. Other times, though, our choices aren't that simple. Sometimes it is more complicated or less clear. Maybe it's less clear because we want it to seem less clear. Maybe it's just more complicated. Is this choice, is this stealing? Am I making this purchase out of greed or pride or covetousness? I could work extra hours. Is this faithful diligence in providing for my family or is it neglect of my family and my spiritual responsibilities? If I take this day off, is it enjoying rest as a gift from God or am I being lazy? If I throw over these money-changing tables, am I being passionately zealous for God's kingdom or just angrily pursuing my preferences? Is this a time for love to cover a multitude of sins by absorbing an offense against me or is this a time for me to lovingly confront and warn and exhort? Sometimes we have commands that could cover both sides of those type of things. Be like, oh, there are are limitless numbers of scenarios that require wisdom to know which principles at which time and what measure to apply from God's word and you must have the Holy Spirit to guide you in that wisdom. We unquestionably need the Holy Spirit to guide us in these countless decisions like this that we face each day. In fact, we cannot discern the proper application of the principles and commands of Scripture without the Holy Spirit's help. It requires wisdom from the Spirit. It requires discernment and insight, understanding that only He can give to us. It requires a humble and realistic attitude to know that every thought and feeling and inclination that you have, every leaning is not necessarily from the Holy Spirit. And just because you went to church this week or read your Bible this morning doesn't mean that every feeling or, or desire that you have is automatically and necessarily from God. It doesn't work that way because we're spiritual schizophrenics as a time, right? There's a battle going on between the desires of the flesh that are in us and the desires of the spirit that we must follow. We follow by being filled with the knowledge of his will through the word. We must engage in this daily battle, walking by the spirit, putting to death our sinful flesh. Only the Holy Spirit can help you and me and all of us live according to God's will of command by giving us wisdom and understanding as we seek those things from him through prayer. Why is this Paul's request? What is the goal of this prayer? The goal of his intercession is that the Colossian Christians would walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. Living according to the standard of Christ, our Savior and King. And next week, if it is according to God's will of decree, we will spend more time looking more closely at walking worthy of the Lord, living lives that are pleasing to him in every way. Because Paul gives us four pictures of what that kind of life looks like in verses 10 to 12. One more one more point to emphasize on this. We talked about Paul's prayer pattern of thanksgiving and intercession. We talked about Paul's prayer request, specifically that God would fill his people with the knowledge of his will. There's an emphasis, there's a piece of this though that I want to follow Paul's prayer example. Ask questions like, what is the focus of your prayers? Is it, is it only you or is it others also? I struggle with that, right? There's just so many things that I need to pray about for myself that so often I don't intercede for anyone else. 
when you're praying for you, when you're praying for others, do you pray toward the goal of what benefits you or the goal of what glorifies God? Are, your, are our prayers self-focused and now-focused or are they God-focused and eternity-focused? One author said, left to ourselves, we are never more selfish than when we pray. We go to our knees and indulge every impulse for gratification. God, give me everything that I want. Yet here, God, through the example of Paul, provides us with a different example of prayer than that. What's the focus of your prayers? What is the content of your prayers? Do you ever feel like you just don't know what to pray for? Uh, what should I pray? Anybody else? Yes. You know, there's good biblical precedent for that. I mean, the disciples didn't know how to pray, so they asked Jesus. Anybody glad that the disciples weren't confu- were confused about how to pray? Because then we have the pattern of the Lord's Prayer to know, here's how you should pray. Paul admitted to the believers in Rome that we, Christians, we do not know what to pray for as we should and responds that the Holy Spirit helps us in those things. God is gracious, though, and his word is sufficient for us, giving us all we need to live a godly life. So when we don't know what to pray for, we can consider a passage like this and learn what to pray for, what the content of our prayers should be for ourselves and for others. It's like, you know, this person on this, this, I'm not sure what to pray for them about. Well, you can pray that God would fill them with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and understanding given to them by the Spirit so that they would walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him in every way. Will you commit to pray like this for your fellow saints and siblings like this week. Nobody's coming to the altar. There's not an altar. But will you commit to pray like this? Pray these requests for others like by name. Like do this. Perhaps start with your care group list. If you're a member here, right, that's why we have care groups You work through it a family or a few families at a time. And when you finish the list, you know what you can do? Two options. Move to a different list or you can just start again. And then when you finish, just start again, again. Paul didn't stop. Did you hear that? From the day we heard, when we first heard that there were a body of believers in Colossae, we have not ceased to pray for you. Paul didn't stop praying for the believers that he knew and cared about. Why should we? Why should we stop? Is the need going to end? No. Is God's grace dwindling in its reserve for his people? No. So why should our prayers stop? And remember that because of Christ, because of Christ, God does hear your prayers. And out of the abundance of his grace, he answers our prayers. And that grace of God in Christ is seen at the cross and proclaimed at the table. And so as we think of opportunity, privilege, responsibility, desperate need that we all have to be in prayer for each other, it's not because of works of righteousness that we come before God's throne. But it's because of Christ. 
that passage that Ken read from Exodus struck me of the picture of the mountain of God, the fire, the thunder, the earthquake. Remember that the barrier that was put around that is like there's going to be a boundary line and anybody who crosses it needs to die because God is too holy for sinful people to approach. Hey, that boundary line, because of the bread and body, body and blood of Christ, that boundary line is gone. God is no less holy, but we don't need to fear going up to the mountain because Jesus just opened the way for us. Boldly approach the throne of grace. You will be heard because of Jesus. Keep that in mind as you come. A holy, all-powerful, otherwise unapproachable God says, come and sit with me at my table. Come into my family through forgiveness purchased by my son. That's a table. Christ has died, shed his blood for our forgiveness. Bring us to God. We have redemption, forgiveness of sins in the name of Jesus Christ. And if that's true of you, uh, a member of Risen King Church or not, if Christ is your access to the Father by faith, right, your trust is in him, then this table's for you. And so we, we in, the, in the words of Christ, we invite you to come. If you're not a follower of Christ, you don't get to approach God based on your own goodness because you have none. Right, this first aspect of God's will of command for you is that you would repent of your sins and trust in Jesus. That is God's will from his word for each one of you. If you have trusted in Christ, though, then come and worship with us. Um, deacons will dismiss us by row. Uh, Fred will lead us and serve the table for us. We'll partake. Uh, get, grab the elements, return to our seats, and uh, partake of those things together as, as he leads us. Let's pray and give thanks prior to doing that. Our Father in heaven, you are gracious to give us the, the, your revealed will in your word and to fill us with the knowledge of your will and to, to even reveal what your plan is for us in Christ, that we would be sanctified, that we would be one with him. Um, glorify yourself. Proclaim your gospel by your spirit's power in our, in our hearts uh, through the partaking of the elements at the table today. Thank you for Christ's his death and resurrection for us. Amen.